Good morning, Bethel. I'm going to make a quick, shameless plug for prayer meeting right now um, before we jump into uh, our text in Luke. Um, if you are able at all with your schedule, and if you're not involved in Awana, I know a lot of you are involved with um, serving in Awana, which is a great thing, and because of the growth of Awana, more of you are, are required um, down the hall, and that's great. We're actually praying for you in prayer meeting, among other things. Um, I would really encourage you, if you can make it on a Wednesday night, to join us. Um, it's not the only place that we pray corporately as a body, um, but it's one of the places where we really, one of the few places where we really um, focus together um, in prayer. And I think this is a, a, an area where we really need to grow personally and as a church. And so I'd really encourage you, if you if you can make it, if you drop your kids off on Wednesday nights to Awana, um, it's easy to just, you know, come on down the hall. Uh, we meet in this room right here from 7 to 8, so you can drop your kids off. You might even be able to run and get some coffee, you know, if you're sleepy and still get back at 7 o'clock um, and then be done to pick up your kids at 8 o'clock. So I encourage you to join us. Okay. Um, have any of you heard of the promise of Kalamazoo? Anybody? Okay, I'm the only one that read the New York Times article. I hadn't either until I think it was earlier this week. Maybe it was last week. Um, but Kalamazoo is in Michigan, in case you don't know that. Um, city in Michigan, and as many of you know, the um, economy in Michigan has been pretty depressed um, in many places in Michigan over the last several years. And one of the ways that a group of anonymous donors, apparently nobody knows who these people are except this one lady that is the one who actually talks to these secret people, um, they donate a large amount of money, um, and there's some sort of a foundation or something, that provides college education for any high school graduate in Kalamazoo. If you live in Kalamazoo and graduate from a Kalamazoo school, you are eligible. Now, it, it changed. If you, if you move in like your junior year, <laughs> that's going to you know, decrease the amount that you get. But if you live there, you can actually get a full ride to a Michigan school. It's amazing, isn't it? So it's actually very interesting. I thought, wow, that's a really creative idea. I mean, obviously, they're not simply thinking about, you know, the students. They are thinking about Kalamazoo's economy and Michigan's economy. That's not a bad thing. But in a time when many cities that are troubled economically are looking to things like casinos to invigorate the economy, what a wonderfully um, creative idea that could really... Um, bear some significant fruit in the years to come. Well, that's just a dim reflection of what Jesus is talking about and actually encouraging us to do in Luke 16. So if you could turn in your Bible to Luke 16, we could learn a lesson. I don't know who those anonymous donors are. Some of them may be believers and some of them may be driven by um, some of these very things. But... If they're not, we definitely, and if they are, we definitely could learn a lesson along the lines of what Jesus is 
um, pointing us to in Luke 16. So if you're using a pew Bible, you can find the text on page 1043. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then I'm going to pray. And then we'll dive in. Luke 16, 1 to 13. Now, Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master's taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No one, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Oh God, you are great. You are a great God. You are the only God. And you are the source and the owner of all things. You own us, whether we like it or not. Our lives are not our own. And if we have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. Our lives are doubly not our own. We have been bought with a price. And I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds this morning, that we would glorify you with our lives, with our finances, with our hearts, with our stuff. Lord, please, Mold and shape our desires and our values to be in line with yours. Reshape us into the image of your son so that we become healthy 
and alive and strong in your grace and free and full to overflowing to love and serve and give in all kinds of ways and even creative, clever ways. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the desires that we need to hear Jesus' words here as good news and have a desire to apply them and, and follow them. I pray that you would give us lots of creative ideas, lots of shrewd ideas of ways to seek first your kingdom and to lay up treasure in heaven. Lord, would you cause some moments, even as we sit here now and in the week to come, where we come away saying, I know what I'm going to do. I pray that you would give us those ideas and that you would unleash all kinds of loving giving. So, Lord, we need you to fill us up. We often are so empty because our values and what we're pursuing does not fill us up and leaves us without anything to give to anyone else. In fact, it leaves us on the take, very needy. So, Lord, by your grace, would you help us to know the grace of our Lord Jesus, experience it, be reminded of it, taste and see it, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was infinitely, eternally rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become truly and eternally rich. And I pray that we would want to plow the riches of your mercies, the riches of your grace into the lives of others in any way we can. So please teach us. Please, by your spirit, apply these powerful words, this powerful parable to our lives and bear fruit through it. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an outline uh, in the bulletin if that's helpful for you to follow along. There'll be one change. I'll give you a heads up when we get there. Um, but let's look first at point one, the parable itself in verses one through eight, um, more specifically one through eight A, the first half of verse eight. So I'll read it again. Now, Jesus was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering. That's actually the same word as the uh, younger son who squandered his portion of the estate with reckless living back in chapter 15 that we looked at last week. So this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, ah, what am I going to do? He's taken the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. And then the light bulb goes on. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. So that when I'm removed from my management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors and began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. This is a lot of oil, folks. This is not an individual debtor. This is like a merchant 
debtor. This is a big, this is like a corporate loan, not a personal loan, okay? It's that sort of thing. He said to him, take your bill, sit down and write, sit down quickly and write 50. Cuts it in half. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. Apparently the markup on oil is a little more than the markup on wheat, I guess. Okay? Now the reason he had time to do this might seem a little strange. This whole thing probably seems strange to you. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Is because the rich master... Again, we have to get out of our time and place, okay? He, he did not micromanage his manager. That's why he learned of his mismanagement from others who reported it, like it says at the beginning. So he's called to account, told to give an account of his management, verse 2. So he's actually got to go get that book. He's got to go get those bonds, okay, that um, need to be pulled together. So this is not a modern-day financial services firing scenario where your office is immediately locked and all your possessions are boxed up for you and you're not going to be back in that office again. Okay, there's no hard drives. There's no transaction history per se, maybe some on paper, but not multiple copies and, you know. So this guy has to pull it together and then give it to the rich man, okay? So taking advantage of that time... He creatively, shrewdly, sets himself up for hospitality when he gets the boot, which is imminent. He's getting it soon. So, verse 8, if you were the rich man that had this guy as your manager, how would you respond? His master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. What in the world? This is such a weird parable. Why is Jesus telling this story? It certainly seems confusing. Now, uh, before we start to unpack the meaning of the parable, just a couple things we need to keep in mind. I've said this before in Luke, but but it's good to be reminded because we run into parables periodically in the Gospels. Whenever you run into parables, parables are different from biblical history, poetry, you know, other genres. So, How do you interpret a parable? Well, usually, usually, there are exceptions, like last week. (laughs) There's actually multiple points with the uh, lost sons and the father. But usually, a parable shoots a bullet rather than buckshot. Okay, usually the parable has one main thrust, one main meaning. It's driving to one point, not a lot of different points like buckshot. You know what buckshot is? Shotgun. A lot of little BBs. Okay, I'm getting some knots. Okay, you've never shot a gun. So a shotgun doesn't shoot a singular bullet. It, it has this thing, and there's lots of little BBs in it, so when you shoot it, it sprays a pattern, okay? Okay, thank you for the nod, because I would have just gone right past that one. So um, not buckshot. The other thing is parables are not allegories. You have to be careful with this. Sometimes what people do is they try to find a correlation to every single piece of the puzzle, and then you get all kinds of weirdness. Oh, is God like the rich manager? And who's the, who's the manager? Is that... Stop. Don't do that, okay? Don't look for some kind of hidden code of correlations, okay? If it's intended to be obvious, it will be obvious in the text. You don't have to figure it out. You know, there's no Bible code to crack, Okay, just pay attention to the parable and you'll see. Okay? And then 
I mean, obviously in this passage, I think it goes without saying, but Jesus is not commending embezzlement. (laughs) He's not commending dishonesty. Okay, so then what's the point? Well, the text tells us if we pay attention carefully. So look at the point, verses 8b, the second half of verse 8, and verse 9. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then here's the, the main point that Jesus is driving to. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind. In other words, people that live for this world only, that live for this life only, than the sons of light, those who are living for Christ, the life to come, and that trickles back into this life because they are servants of his his kingdom now. So the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Huh? Okay, so that's the point. Totally transparent, right? We can just go on. This is weird. This is a little unexpected. But thankfully, as we dive into it a little bit, we'll see it's actually not that uncomplicated. It's not that complicated. So let's unpack it a little bit here. Does this master commend his unrighteous manager for ripping him off? No, that's obvious. Does he commend him for embezzlement, dishonesty, and then looting him on the way out? No, he commends him because he acted shrewdly. He praises him for his cleverness. Okay? So imagine it. Imagine a not-so-scrupulous tycoon type or a mob boss. Okay? This might be closer to our categories. Imagine this guy, see, see in, the, in the ancient world, Jesus speaking primarily to um, a, a kind of agrarian, peasant society, the rich don't have positive connotations, okay? So, so we sometimes think neutral or um, positive because sometimes we really admire people that have done well. It's not that being wealthy is inherently wrong, but in the book of Luke, you're kind of automatically thinking there's going to be negative associations here, okay? So imagine a not-so-scrupulous tycoon, mob boss. He knows his way around the law. He knows how to maximize his earnings, minimize his taxes and penalties. And he's got an employee like this that pulls a pretty clever, fast one on him. Now, sometimes that boss might fit the guy with some concrete boots, right? Okay? And he'll end up at the bottom of the lake, But sometimes he might just lean back in his chair, smile, and say, you little rascal, you got me. Well done. And just let him go. He's praising, commending his shrewdness. Okay, that's the idea here. As I was thinking about this, it hit me um, how there is nothing new under the sun. Once again, that's no surprise. Um, If something strikes you as weird in the Bible, chances are, if you just stop and think about it, um, we wrestle with the same things. We deal with the same stuff. It just has different packaging, different clothing on it. Um, And so think about this. We think this parable is weird, and yet this same storyline, do you know this? The point even that Jesus makes with it has grossed a ridiculous amount of money in, in Hollywood. I haven't seen all these movies, but Ocean's 
11, 12, 13. The Italian job, okay? All those movies are about not so bad, quote unquote, thieves who rip off the really bad thieves. Okay? What ends up happening to you in the audience as you watch a movie like this? Well, what happens is you praise the shrewdness of the crooks who steal from the crooks. Isn't that strange? What? So, this is nothing new, okay? Jesus is way ahead of Hollywood, okay? So, the sons of this age are shrewd. That should be obvious in our experience. Those who live for this life only and think that this life is all there is, they are going to be quite clever to find every loophole, exploit every possible opportunity, milk a thing for all it's worth, etc., etc., etc. Okay? They are shrewd for the sake of material gain. They are shrewd for the sake of earthly wealth and comfort. They are clever and creative in order to get ahead and to avoid falling behind. Okay? They're crafty and bold and decisive when it comes to protecting their own self-interest. Right? You see it all the time, all around us. See it in our own hearts, see it on the news, see it everywhere. So the rich man praises the shrewdness of this dishonest employee, and Jesus turns and uses this to make a very important point. Okay, we sons of light, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are a Christian, trusting in Jesus, you're following Jesus, you are, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness, okay, and you've been transferred to the kingdom of light, kingdom of his God's beloved son. Okay, so we're sons of light. We're members of it. We're citizens of a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. Okay? And we actually need to learn a lesson in shrewdness from the sons of this age, the members of the kingdoms of this world. Okay? See, they think the self-interests to protect and the gain to be had is so valuable that they are very thoughtful and very creative and very decisive to maximize that gain and minimize their losses. And Jesus is trying to say the treasures of the kingdom of God are infinitely more valuable, and yet we are not nearly as thoughtful and creative and decisive to maximize that gain and minimize the wasting of our wealth that will not last if we don't lay it up in heaven. Seek first the kingdom with our wealth. So we stand to learn a lesson in shrewdness, all of us. Okay? Of course we're supposed to be innocent as doves, but we are called to be wise as serpents. So what does that mean for us? Verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves. This is a pregnant verse here. So just we're going to take it a little piece at a time. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay? We should shrewdly seek first the kingdom of God with our possessions, our finances, our wealth. Okay? We should so use our wealth that we would, quote-unquote, make friends by it. And I think... What that means is that it applies in two directions. One, meeting the needs of those who are materially poor and needy. 
both Christians and non. And second, funding, facilitating the means by which the gospel reaches more and more people so that you can meet the greatest need of those who are spiritually needy. Okay? Does that make sense? So, and I'm going to give you reasons why I believe that. That's not just out of my head. It's out of the text, both in Luke and elsewhere in the Bible. So this, applica- this um, exhortation to make friends, what does that look like? Let's break it down. Meeting the needs of those who are materially poor and needy, both Christian and non, and funding, facilitating the means by which the gospel reaches to more and more people so that we can meet the greatest need of those who are spiritually needy, okay? So let's take them each in turn. First, meeting the needs of those who are materially poor and needy, both Christian and non. Turn back to Luke 12. Not so long ago, we walked through this text. So Luke 12, in verse 16, we have the parable of the rich fool. There's a lot of parallels between chapter 12 and chapter 16. What we're looking at, you can tease some of those out more later. I'll just hit on a few. Luke 12, 16 to 20 is that parable. And then in 21, 12, 21, Jesus says, so is the man, in other words, he's a fool just like that guy, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself, namely on this earth, and is not rich toward God. Okay, and then how does that rich toward God thing get unpacked? We'll keep reading. He gives us the don't worry about your life, seek first the kingdom, you know, don't run after the stuff that everybody else that, you know, is so earthly minded, runs after, seek first the kingdom, your, your father will take care of you. And then look at verse 32. And just remember chapter 16 and see all the connections here, the parallels. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to, your translation might say, that to charity or to the needy. And that doesn't, it doesn't distinguish believer or non. I think it encompasses both. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out and unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Because wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So be dressed in readiness, keep your lamps lit, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. In other words, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, we're not here forever, life is a vapor, you know, the only thing that really lasts is seek first your kingdom type stuff, then this is where our focus ought to be. So blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Verse 41, Peter says, Lord, are you addressing this parable to to us, your disciples, or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, casting it wider than just the disciples, who then is the faithful and, translation might say sensible, it's wise. Same root word as shrewd in chapter 16. Who's the shrewd manager? Who's the shrewd steward? whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them the rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing, namely seeking first the kingdom with their wealth, with their possessions. Finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Okay? So we should shrewdly seek ways to seek first the kingdom, meet the needs of the needy, 
Christian and non, when those needy ones are believers, they are going to warmly welcome you into eternal habitations. You will have a thankful welcoming committee when you enter heaven. Little, little kind of foreshadowing of this is found in 2 Corinthians 9, okay, which is a really important section for understanding a biblical theology of giving, what the Bible says about giving. So turn over there <clears throat> to, to 2 Corinthians 9. I want you to see that this is um, saying the same thing. It's in harmony with what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians. Paul was um, collecting. He was traveling around gathering a collection for the poor believers in Judea, in Jerusalem, okay? Those saints were suffering. They were in need. They were believers. He's going to some of these Gentile churches, collecting money, and he's going to take it to the poor Jerusalem saints. Here's what he said to the church in Corinth, okay? He's basically saying, make good on your promise. You had said you were going to give to this I'm I'm letting you know ahead of time so that you're prepared when I come to give generously to the needs of these saints like you said. So 2 Corinthians 9, 11 says this. As you give, as you fulfill this promise to give this way to meet the needs of these saints, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us, through us taking it to those believers in Judea, is producing thanksgiving to God. Later on, it unpacks that thanksgiving and what it's all about. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service, us taking this money to them, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, those poor saints in Jerusalem, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof, the proof of your faith, the proof proof of your love given by this ministry. If you give this money, you're giving proof of the fact that you are trusting Jesus and you are loving other people by his grace. So the proof given by this ministry, they, the ones who receive this gift, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Imagine yourself as a poor believer in Jerusalem and you have no ability to meet needs and you've got kids that are, you know, starving and some believers in Corinth hundreds of miles away give money and Paul brings this gift, you are just welling up with thanksgiving to God because God did that because he saved them by his grace. And it's the grace of Jesus at work in their lives that's bearing this fruit that you're tasting right now. <laughs> and so you give thanks to God and you, you're, I wish I could just hug these people. So you can imagine when those Jerusalem saints died, went to heaven, and then the Corinthian believers die, they meet up and they're just like, oh, come on home. Oh, I've been wanting to meet you. So glad to meet the Corinthian church. You met our needs. Rich welcome into eternal habitations. So that dishonest manager, remember him? He was shrewd because he wanted a warm welcome of hospitality and support when he was fired. He has totally hooked up some of these big farmers. So when he gets out, hey, hey, uh, Joseph, remember, remember that 
Remember that thing I did for you? You know? Um, I need a place to stay for like the next six months. <laughs> um, I need you to hook me up with some serious olive oil for the next year. Um, okay, sure, no problem. You've saved me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. What do you need? Okay, we are called to be shrewd so that our monetary giving now to meet the needs of the needy will be laying up treasure in heaven and the treasure of a rich welcome of lives that were touched and changed by means of our giving. Grace-enabled, God-enabled, gospel-enabled giving. So it applies to, to giving to meet the material needs of the needy, both Christian and non, and it applies to giving aimed at meeting the greatest need of those who are spiritually bankrupt, which is everybody without Jesus. Okay, so just to be practical and give examples, imagine that you hear of a certain ministry that's involved in passing out New Testaments in an Arab country where they don't have, I mean, Bibles are illegal, so, you know, there's not many Bibles, and there's these people that are willing to risk their lives to pass out New Testaments. This happens. This isn't, I'm not making this up. And you hear about that, and they're in need of funds to produce more Bibles, and you know what? You think your budget's pretty tight already, but you are moved by this need, and you really want to give. So you start to think. And, and what, this is why I was praying the way that I was praying at, at the beginning. I am praying that in this service and this coming week, we as a people start thinking. And we say, I know what I'm going to do. I could sell this on Craigslist. <laughs> I could sell, it's been sitting in the garage. I could sell this on whatever. You know, I could sacrifice here. Maybe it's brown bagging it for whatever so that you can give to meet that need. And then you die. And I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm not going to try to pretend to know how this all works. And sometimes some of this speculation is too you know, kind of oriented to, I can't wait to be with my loved one. And that's all great. We are going to be so captivated by God that, you know, um, please, please, please know that God is the center of heaven. And heaven is heaven because God is there. Okay, but it's going to be this perfect loving community. And certainly we're going to be um, interacting with each other with perfect love. Okay, so I don't know what it's going to look like. But imagine a man named Muhammad who comes up to you and says, Welcome, friend. I've been waiting for you. You don't know me, but I am so glad to finally meet you. I have been thanking God for you since your money made it possible for me to receive a New Testament, and I was converted, and so your giving is one of the means God used to save me. And here I am. <laughs> Praise God. Okay? Or your heart's burden to reach out more proactively in your neighborhood. And your budget's already pretty tight. And you figure one of the best ways to get this started is to have your neighbors over for meals. Hospitality costs money, doesn't it? Has that ever been an inhibitor to you? Grocery budget barely enough to take care of your family most months. So you pray and you get shrewd. And you find some clever and creative ways to make it work. And you start inviting your neighbors. And you're praying that the Lord will just kick up some really sweet conversations about the gospel. 
And then some of your neighbors get saved. You are making friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, your friends will welcome you into eternal habitations. So this could be a personal application, individual level, kind of small. Maybe nobody will know about it. It could also happen on a larger scale. There's a church back where we came from in Chicago that has a resale shop, actually um, Andy Hudson and Bill Smith and, and Bill Cruz and that church do, has, has a guy in their church that does the same thing. So this church back in the Chicago area has two resale shops. One of them, all the proceeds go to a ministry called Outreach Ministries. And last year they raised $80,000 to plow into Outreach Ministries, which is reaching into a ethnically, socioeconomically diverse area with a lot of needs, refugees and, and all kinds of stuff. The other one, they have two resale shops. The other one, they plow all of those funds into the, their disability ministry and provide scholarships for Johnny and Friends camps and stuff like that. It's just beautiful. How creative. Somebody thought up that, thought that up. So what might happen this morning? What might happen this week as we say, Lord, I, I want to do this. Would you give me some clever idea? Maybe it's small. That's okay. Maybe it's big. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So how is the Lord calling you and me to be shrewd for the sake of the kingdom? Maybe it's a new or greater commitment to our deacon fund because you want to meet the needs of folks that are needy here among us or connected to us. Or maybe the Lord tugged on your heart last week when Matthew Smith was here in response to sponsoring a compassion child. And maybe you backed away because you didn't think it was wise. I don't know. Lord only knows. But maybe you need to get wise to find ways to make it happen. So you see how simple the point is. This is a weird parable, but it's actually pretty simple. And it's one we really need to hear. Let's shrewdly seek first the kingdom. And by the way, I hope you see the centrality of the heart in having a shrewdness orientation toward giving. Jesus is saying that the faithful use Being a faithful steward, faithful manager of his money, Jesus is saying that faithfulness is shrewdness. It's seek first the kingdom, shrewdness in our use of our money. That is actually a different orientation than box-checking, dutiful tithing. Okay, faithfulness and tithing is a good thing. I'm not knocking that. There are some pointers in the New Testament that the continuation of the tithe is endorsed. Okay, Matthew 23, 23, wherein Jesus says to the Pharisees, you know, you tithe the mint, dill, and the cumin. You know, you're doing all this picayune tithing, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You should have focused on the latter without neglecting the former. So he's not saying don't tithe. He's saying make sure you don't miss the heart of the tithe. And then also in 1 Corinthians 9, the regular support of the, of the priests in, in the Old Testament is basically reaffirmed there, okay? So for many of us, giving a tenth of what we make to the church and other worthy ministries 
That could be a sacrifice, a significant one for others. Giving a tenth is not much at all. But whatever your scenario, it's clear that Jesus is after our hearts here. Okay, the manager was shrewd. He was driven because he wanted to secure his future. He wanted to. He needed to. He was compelled to. So the gain has to appear as extremely valuable to us for us to shrewdly pursue that gain. Does that make sense? I mean, I wonder how many of us are actually driven that way in giving. Or do we just almost kind of begrudgingly like, I really hope God doesn't mean off the gross. I think I'll just ignore it and hope it goes away. If we are more dutiful than driven, maybe we've lost sight of the gain of giving. And this is loving and gracious of Jesus to give us this parable over and over again. You're going to hear me say this whenever, I mean, we don't, whenever it comes up in the text is when we talk about it, okay? But over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus motivates us to give not by guilt. Tell me where that passage is. It's always the promise of gain. Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. What's going on there in the motivational dynamics? Provide, sell your possession to give to the needy. Because I said so. No, provide money bags for yourselves that won't wear out. So Jesus is digging down once again to change our hearts. He's changing us from the inside out, not just behavior management and making sure that, you know, it's exactly 10%. And he's doing it by the promise of gain. Well, Jesus makes the point in 8b to 9, and then he presses that point home in verses 10 to 13. So let's look at how he does that. Um, you can forget the heading to point 3A. <laughs> Faithfulness doesn't come with the territory because you know what? When I gave the outline to Gail, um, I was thinking along the wrong lines. I had kind of disconnected verse 10 from the surrounding context. And what I was going to do is unpack it something like this. Sometimes what we do is, you know, if I had a little more, I'd give faithfully. I'd give generously. And, you know, what I was going to say is, it doesn't come with the territory as if once I get over there, then I'll be generous. Okay, it's not a situational thing. Well, if I was over there on the, the greener, you know, pun intended, side of the fence, then I'd be generous. No, it's a desire and a priority thing wherever you are. So little or much, but that's actually not what Jesus is saying. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, so look at it again. Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, the currency of this age, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, your steward, who will give you that which is your own? Um, let me just make a couple observations here before we drive to the main point of these verses. Look what the text says here. Money in this life is a very little thing. 
You see it? He who is faithful in a very little thing. He's not talking about those of you that have a little. He's talking about everything you have in this life is a very little thing. That's an important observation that we need to hear. So if you're rich, you have a lot of little. (laughs) If you're poor, you have a little, little. But either way, you've got a little. So if you're rich, you've got a lot of marbles. Another person's got a few marbles, but at the end of the day, they're just marbles. It's just a little thing. We need to hear this because we don't feel that way very often. We don't believe that oftentimes. Money in this life is a very little thing. We need to be not conformed to this world, to this age, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So money is a very little thing, and it's not true riches. Okay, do you see it there? Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Okay, so money in this life is not true riches, like Bill read in 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches on this earth, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Okay? So money is a very little thing. It's not true riches. We need to really get God's economy, really believing that the widow's might, she actually gave more than those who were just giving out of the surplus that didn't hurt at all. She laid up more treasure in heaven, God's economy. Okay, so we need to, be, we need to seek to be shrewd, seek first the kingdom, faithfulness in little, little, or in much little type people. Because as the text makes clear, we are stewards, not owners. Look at verse 12 again. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. On this earth, everything that you have is another's. Who will give you that which is your own? Our wealth is not our own. Even our ability to get wealth comes from the Lord. Do you know this verse in Deuteronomy? This was really helpful the first time I ever ran across this. Deuteronomy 8, God says to his people back then, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power, my power, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Because see, if we think it's ours by our own hard work, then we're going to think I get the say as to how this gets distributed. Verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. It doesn't say he gives you the wealth. That's true. He actually goes behind that and says, you know that hard Protestant work ethic? You know, you, you know that hard work, that get up in the morning and get after it sort of thing? I wired you that way. I gave you the power to get wealth. That he, you know that mind that you have that you're using in your job? He gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore. Okay? So no matter how much you have, no matter how hard you've worked for it, it's not really yours. It's not mine. We are managing another's money. We are the FedEx guy or girl. We're the middleman. Have you ever seen The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn? It's a great book, really easy, quick read. I think there's probably a copy in the bookstore. Highly commend it to you. Let me read a quote from page 74. We're God's errand boys and delivery girls. We should keep that in mind when we set our salaries. Let's not have an inflated view of our own value. We don't own the store. We just work here. 
Suppose you have something important you want to get to someone who needs it. You wrap it up and hand it over to the FedEx guy. What would you think if instead of delivering the package, he took it home, opened it, and kept it for himself? You'd say, this guy doesn't get it. The packages don't belong to him. He's just the middleman. His job is to get them from me to the person I want him to hand them off to. Just because God puts his money in our hands doesn't mean he intends for it to stay there. So the text says money in this life is a very little thing. It's not true riches, though it can be turned into that. And it's not ours. And he says in the text, it fails. Money's going to fail. That's another thing we need to hear. And when it does, when it fails, it will either be for you and for me an epic fail (laughs) or it will actually be no loss because we've already counted it as loss in view of real treasure. So Randy Alcorn in another place in the book, he says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Okay, treasure laid up in heaven will not fail. Now, we need to see the main point of these verses. And so look at the the kind of flow of the argument here. He says, he who is faithful in a very little thing, that's in this life, is faithful also in much. Next life. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth in this life, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You see that? In other words, this is not an optional thing if you call yourself a Christian. Christians are Christians with their money or they're not Christians. Remember back in chapter 14, so then none of you, it's not optional, it's an either or thing. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up the right, the ownership, the the kind of decision-making power of, of the disposition of your possessions. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus is the owner. He is the one who has the right to tell us how it should be distributed, which is another reason why this is such an appropriate parable. Okay, the dishonest manager's action was urgent and necessary. And the way that Jesus applies it to us is to show that this is an urgent and necessary message that we need to hear as well, which is why he ends with verse 13. It's an either-or mastery issue. No one can serve. You can't. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one, love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth as your master. Okay? Again, money itself, the paper, it's neutral but it doesn't make a good God. So you can't serve it in that sense. So you see this either-or orientation here? You remember back in chapter 14, there was this stuff a couple weeks ago about hating our family and our own lives? And, you know, we spent some time on that. What does he mean by hate? Is it this emotional, like, disgust or something like that? No, it's not that. It's a decisive refusal to be ruled by any other master than Jesus. Okay, so the same issues are going on here. It doesn't mean, Jesus doesn't mean you should, you should have this visceral emotional reaction against currency. 
That's not it. It's a refusal to be mastered by money, knowing that you will either serve one or the other. So he's saying, God must be our master. Let's serve him. So, as we close here, we can't serve, we can't serve two masters. It's either going to be one or the other. How do people serve money? Does, does money need anything? Do people serve money in order to give to money? No, people serve money in order to, because they believe the promises that money makes. Do you get that? People don't serve money to give to money. They serve money because money pr promises something. It offers something. And if you believe that offer, you will serve your master and you will commend your master to other people. Guess what? Our great God that we sung about, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I think sometimes we relate to him that way as if we give to kind of meet God's needs. Uh, no, God doesn't have any needs. So we need to be careful about the way that we view serving God. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In fact, Jesus came. He did not come to be served. But he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, the way Paul talks about that service and that giving is he who was infinitely rich, voluntarily, lovingly became poor so that we through his poverty might become spiritually rich, have the riches of his mercy and his grace. And when we know that grace, when we are filled up with that grace, when our future is completely secure and completely, totally bright, even if we have nothing in our houses under foreclosure, going into foreclosure. If our future is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, riches, we are filled up and freed to love and give and serve. And we might actually even get excited about maximizing our giving so that we can make as many friends as possible because we want them to know the grace of our amazing, spiritually wealthy, rich in grace and mercy Savior who plowed his riches into our poverty, we who are spiritually bankrupt so that we could be his sons and daughters and receive this inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. So do you see how the gospel and the grace of God and the promises of God drive giving like this? So may God give us grace, help us to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so we will want to think about how we can be clever and shrewd about giving so that we can make as many friends as possible. 
Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to experience and know in fresh and deeper ways the grace of the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich in the truest and the deepest and the most eternal and ultimate sense. And I pray that we would long to give that gift to as many as possible. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close by singing um, maybe one verse from our great God.